When's the uh, last time you bought a pineapple? And when you bought it, uh, what'd you pay for it? I picked this up the other day at Marsh for uh, $3.99. $3.99. Now, I don't know if that's a bargain or not. But anyway, way back in the 1500s, one pineapple would cost $8,000. Can you imagine $8,000 for a pineapple? That's, that's a lot of money for a piece of fruit. So how'd this come about? Well, back there in the 1500s, people in Europe had never seen a pineapple before. But then Christopher Columbus made that famous trip across the ocean where he claimed to discover a new world. And one of the proofs, he brought one of these back. And the people in Europe, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. They'd never seen a piece of fruit like this before. I mean, something that looks like a pine cone, and yet it's juicy like an apple. So that's where they came up with this name, pineapple. And because the pineapple was so rare and hard to get, I mean, over there in Europe, they tried their best to grow these things, but they just didn't have the right climate. So in order to get one of these, you had to bring it clear over from the other side of the world. So because the pineapple was so rare and hard to get, it became a symbol of luxury and privilege. I mean, only the wealthiest could afford this. And many times when the rich people would buy a pineapple, they would buy it not so they could eat it, but to, so that they could just simply put it on display. I mean, once or twice a year, they would open up their fancy mansions to the general public and let everybody come through for kind of a home tour. And at one part of that tour, you would sit down in the living room for a few minutes so you could stare at this exotic piece of fruit. And then for the next couple of weeks, everybody in town would be talking about, hey, I got to see a pineapple the other day. You're kidding. No, I really saw. What was it like? Oh, it's amazing. I've never seen anything like it. And if you were really lucky and that rich person had more than one pineapple, they might take one of them and cut them up and let you try a bite, try a sample so you could actually taste what it was like. And that experience would be considered the, the highlight of your life. You know, I've not only seen a pineapple, I actually once had a bite of pineapple. You did. Wow. What was that like? Oh, it was just incredible. Now, can you imagine people making all this fuss about a pineapple. I am sure some of you are sitting there right now and thinking to yourself, I'm just making all this up. <laughs> I'm not. I promise. And just to confirm, let's, let's take it from the 1500s there in the land of Spain. Let's move over a century to the 1600s in England. And there at St. Paul's Cathedral, there in the city of London, some of you have seen this. It's this huge cathedral. It's one of the greatest pieces of architecture of all time. But sitting on top of the South Tower, this big church, sitting on top of that South Tower is an enormous golden pineapple. Now, why would you put a pineapple on a cathedral? Because back in that day and time, this was considered to be one of the rarest of all treasures in the world. So imagine if you could bring somebody back from the 1500s there in Spain or the 1600s there in England. Imagine you could bring them to our day and time and you take them to your local Walmart and they're sitting between the watermelons and the mangoes is this huge pile of pineapples and they notice they're only $3.99 a piece. What are they going to think? You're kidding me. Four bucks for a pineapple? How can that be? How could they be so cheap? I mean, would they not be amazed? So what happened to the pineapple? I mean, 500 years ago, this piece of fruit was honored and esteemed. It was celebrated and protected. I mean, it was considered to be a treat just to see one of these things, let alone eat it. But today, <laughs> I could care less whether I have a pineapple or not. 500 years ago, this was considered to be the most glamorous of all fruits. It cost you $8,000 just to get one. But today, you walk into the grocery store and you just walk right past the pineapples. You don't even give them a second glance. 
500 years ago, this was considered to be a rare and exotic treasure, something of extraordinary value. I mean, it was really special if you had one of these. But today, man, you can find pineapples everywhere. They're so common, so cheap, you can buy one anytime you want, and it's no big deal. So what happened to the pineapple? Well, the pineapple hasn't changed, but our attitude towards it has. Have we not done the same thing with our relationships? Whether it's a friend or your spouse or one of your relatives, your extended family, is it not true that God has surrounded each one of our lives with some rare and exceptional people? And yet instead of treasuring those relationships, we just kind of let those connections just kind of come and go like we're changing clothes. Ah, I'm tired of wearing this. Let me try something else. Think about marriage. Let's just take that one particular relationship today and just kind of focus on that. When you read about marriage in the Bible and you see what God intended for this relationship to be, in his mind, marriage was to be something unique and extraordinary. I mean, imagine how it would feel. And that's really kind of hard for us to do today because of the kind of world in which we're living, kind of environment we're in because of what we see in here every day on the TV and on the Internet. But, but imagine. Imagine if you were only physically intimate with one person for your entire life. There was only one person who was ever given permission on a daily basis to see you naked. And not just physically naked, but emotionally and physically naked too. Imagine the gift of knowing someone that intimately and being known that intimately too. I mean, of all the billions of people that live here on this planet, there's only one who's ever had that experience with you. Only one who's ever enjoyed that kind of a special bond. Would not the intimacy that you enjoyed in a relationship like that, would that not be something pretty spectacular and noteworthy? Absolutely. It would be anything but common and anything but ordinary. I mean, having that kind of a marriage, that kind of a relationship, it would be like you possessed a rare and exotic treasure, which is exactly what God intended for it to be. And yet today we have taken that treasure and just trashed it. We treat our marriages like it's a piece of candy. Once the flavor's gone on, just throw it away and find something else. There's no longer anything special about the marriage relationship. What a tragedy. So what happened? God's idea of marriage hasn't changed. But our attitude towards it has. See, we've lost hold of this truth that the Bible's teaching here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 6. So let's take a look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6. The Bible says, love does not delight. And here's where I want you to focus your attention. This word delight, it's a Greek word, kare. Okay, love never takes joy in anything that's evil. But here's what it does rejoice in. Same Greek word, only in the second part of the verse, the Apostle Paul now takes a prefix and adds, adds it to it. And it's not just kare, it's kare. But it does rejoice in the truth. So first part of the verse and the second part of the verse, you have this key word, delight, rejoice. And in the second part of the verse, Paul intentionally adds this prefix because now when you add the prefix, it takes that word and it intensifies it. Uh, my Greek professor in seminary would illustrate it like this. The Greek word, Greek word for eat is estheo. So a man sits down at a table and he eats a meal. Not, nothing unusual about that. He does it every day. But one day he sits down here at the table and his wife serves him his favorite meal. This is going to be something special. I mean, on this particular day, now he asks for a second helping and a third. He can't get enough. He wants more and more. I mean, this is more than just a meal. This is a feast. 
It's tasty, wonderful, delightful. He, he, I mean, he, th this is a memorable moment. He's not going to forget this for a long, long time. So in order to describe this kind of experience, you don't just say, and he es theo. Now you add that prefix, soon es theo. Because when he ate, he hogged it down. I mean, he didn't just eat the food. He devoured it. A real intense experience. The Apostle Paul's doing the same thing here. Love does not delight in, it never takes joy in anything that's evil. It never wants to see something bad happen to another person. It never celebrates their misfortune. It never supports, endorses, applauds, or is glad in any way when somebody else gets hurt or is harmed. No. But here's what love does delight in. In fact, more than delight, it joyfully celebrates. I mean, it doesn't just get excited. It gets super excited whenever it sees that other person being blessed. See something happening to them that's going to add to and enrich and enhance their life. Make things better for them. Man, that's something love will cheer. I mean, really cheer about. So think about the concept that's being taught here. What do you rejoice in? What, what do you celebrate? What do you honor and esteem? What do you treasure and value and get excited about? What is so important to you, you want to take special care of? Because the way you answer that question is going to tell you something about your heart. And is your heart in the right place? Do you celebrate the right things? And not just things. Think about people. Who do you cherish? I mean, really cherish. And are you cherishing the people you're supposed to? Say you and your family, are, uh, you've gone to Washington, D.C., and you're, you're spending some time there. And one day you're out there walking around just kind of taking in the sights. When all of a sudden this motorcade passes by, a police motorcade. I mean, a bunch of black SUVs, both in front and behind, and they're escorting this car that has the United States flag on it. Right away, you know, hey, who's ever riding in that car? It's got to be somebody important. I mean, to be surrounded and protected like that with all those SUVs, to be given this kind of special attention and care, to be given this kind of an escort, wow, whoever's riding in that car, it's got to be somebody special. Or suppose you were given an autograph, a genuine autograph of George Washington, the father of the country. Do you take that piece of paper and use it as a coaster? Hey, just set your glass on this. No way. No, you frame it and you cover it with glass and you put it in a lockbox and only on the most special occasions do you ever bring it out because you realize with that piece of paper, that autograph, you possess a treasure of extraordinary value. So you're very, very careful in how you handle it. Or suppose you had the privilege of meeting the queen, the queen of England. And as you're being introduced, do you just walk up and shake hands? Or walk up and give her a quick hug and pat on the back and say, hey, how you doing? <laughs> no, no, you do not greet the queen. This is the queen of England. This is no ordinary person. When you're introduced to her, you either bow or you curtsy. Or when the judge enters into the courtroom, what happens? All rise. And immediately, everybody stands up. Why? It's a way of showing honor and esteem for the title they wear, the position they hold. You recognize that because this is a judge, what they say and do, it's going to impact a lot of people's lives in very significant ways. So here's the question. Who do you treat like that? Who in your life gets that kind of special attention and care? Who do you rejoice let me put the shoe in the other foot. Let me remind you what it feels like when people don't rejoice in you. When they don't treat you like you're somebody special. You remember the experience you had as a parent? You know, when your daughter was a little girl, she would run and jump in your lap just for a hug and some comfort. And you love that. As a parent, you just, I mean, as a parent, you, you, your daughter could just sit there for hours because you love to hold her and be close to her. Or when she was a little girl, 
She would hold your hand and skip across the floor as you walked around the mall. Or as a little girl, she would dress up in your clothes and pretend to be you because she thought that was the neatest thing in the world. Or some days you're working there in the kitchen preparing a meal and your daughter would come in and find a stool so she could stand on it, stand next to you and help you cook dinner. Or there were days she'd come running with a big smile on her face to show you that ribbon she got in gymnastics class. And you treasured every one of those moments. But those days are gone because now she's a teenager. And now she wants you to drop her off at the mall and please, Mom, don't come in. She doesn't want you to pick her up at school anymore, and if you ever have to, you have to park way down the street so none of her friends will see you. And rarely does she ever bring her friends home anymore, and when she does, they immediately disappear. They go hide in her room, out of sight, and away from you. I mean, you still yearn. You still yearn for those days when she come running to you and just lay her head on your chest and say, Mommy, I love you. But that's not likely to happen anymore because these days she doesn't she doesn't take delight in. She doesn't rejoice in your presence anymore. And it hurts, doesn't it? It really hurts. So imagine how your spouse feels when they walk into the room and you don't even notice because you've got your eyes glued to that smartphone. Or your spouse is trying to have a conversation with you, but you don't hear a word they say because you're so absorbed in that TV show you're watching. Or you're, you're mad at your partner because the other day they did something that really upset you, and so now you're going to make them pay. Over the next couple days, you give them the cold shoulder. You're not yelling. You're not screaming. You're just ignoring them. You're giving them the silent treatment. And in your mind, you think, oh, this is a mild thing, but it's not. I mean, here they are sitting not more than two feet away, and you're acting like they're invisible, like they're worthless, like they have no value. Do you not understand how cruel that is and how damaging that can be? Why? Because the Bible says here, when you love somebody, it's going to show. You will treat that person with special attention and care. You will go out of your way to honor them. You will go out of your way to notice and celebrate any time they do something good. I mean, it'll be obvious to everybody else in that room how important that person is to you because when they talk, you lean in and listen closely. When they need help, you're the first to be at their side, eager to assist. Let's take it a little bit deeper because the Bible does. How do you know if you love somebody else? Well, look at the first part of the verse. Love does not delight in evil. Love would never ask the other person to do something that is wrong. So your friend calls and said, hey, we're friends, right? Well, yeah. Well, if my husband ever asks you, uh, just tell him we were together the other night at the movies, Okay but we weren't together. I, I, I know that, but uh, well, uh, you see, uh, I was with this other guy and I don't want my husband to know. So you're gonna help me out, right? We're friends, right? We're tighter than sisters, right? No, love would not ask another person to do something like that. Or well, here's the classic example. A young couple is out on a date and the young man begins, his affections begin to go way beyond the comfort zone. He begins to push the boundaries, and so she resists. So he comes back trying to persuade her, but I love you, and I want to be near you. And if you love me, and right away, you know that guy's a phony. He is not to be trusted. He doesn't love you. He may love having sex with you. He may love your body. He may love boasting to all his buddies about the conquest that night, but he doesn't love you because real love would never ask the other person to do something that's wrong. Real love, true love, always encourages the other person to do what is right. 
And then here's another characteristic of real love, the last part of the verse. Real love does not avoid reality. It is always honest about the challenges that it faces. It is committed to the truth. Do you know what the two biggest sources of trouble are in any marriage? It's not money and sex. It's not the in-laws and the children. It's not trying to keep your career going at the same time you're trying to balance all these uh, time pressures with your family. No, the two biggest sources of trouble in any marriage are the husband and the wife. Men, you are not married to a goddess with supernatural powers. You are married to a human being, a human being who has many limitations, and it is guaranteed that some days those limitations will irritate you. And ladies, you are not married to a man who has the wisdom of Solomon and the strength of Hercules and the kindness of Christ. No, you are married to a man who has many, many flaws, a man who will easily be affected by the stress of his job, a man who will tend to get cranky and want to complain a lot whenever he gets sick. You see, both the husband and the wife have got to realize I am married to a sinful person, a sinful person who every day has to live in the midst of a broken down, messed up world, and they will be affected by that environment. So it's guaranteed sooner or later, they will disappoint you. They will let you down. But here's the delightful irony. Because you are a Christian, you not only see the truth of who they are, you now see the truth of who they can be in Jesus. And it's the love that you provide, the love that the Bible's talking about here. When you genuinely celebrate anytime they do something good, when you genuinely cherish them, when you show them honor and esteem, God uses that kind of love to bring out the best in them, to help them grow and change and become someone better. Is that not exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians? As he's writing this letter to his brothers and sisters in Christ there in the church at Corinth. I mean, chapter one, verse, chapter one, verse four, Paul says, I always, I always thank God for you guys. And I'm thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding me. Thank God. Thank God for what? Chapter five, here's a man committing incest with his father's wife. Chapter six, here's these greedy, greedy brothers and sisters of Christ who are suing each other and taking each other to court. Chapter 11, here's a man who gets drunk at the communion service. What kind of good can you find in a church like that? And yet the Apostle Paul says, in the midst of all that darkness, I still see these moments of light. In, in the midst of all this trouble and discord, I still see evidences of God's grace working in your life. That's what I want to highlight. That's what I want to celebrate. And when you begin to cherish people like that, God can use that kind of love to draw out the best. Now, I want to be honest. <laughs> Some people won't respond to that love. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he gave it his very best shot, and yet there were still some people here in this church that wouldn't respond to that love. They refused to change their way. And then you think about God, how he's constantly reaching out to us with a perfect love. And yet there are some people who still will not open their hearts to his grace. Why? Because they prefer to find their delight in that which is evil, not that which is good. But here's the other side of the coin. Always keep this in mind. If any of those people are ever to be reached, it'll be this kind of love that will melt their hearts. A love that is always seeking what is good, what is best for them. Kathy Chappelle tells about a day as she went with a friend of hers to the St. Louis Zoo, one of the best zoos in all the world. And of course, they brought all their children along to enjoy the adventure. Well, on that particular day, they just opened up a brand new exhibit. This happened many, many years ago. This new exhibit was called the Big Cat Country. 
Some of you have been there and you've seen this. I have. It's great. It's a place where with both the lions and with the tigers, they have a place for each. They let them out of their cages so they can be in these huge enclosures where those big cats can now just run free and frolic and play. And you get to watch this as you're standing on the skyway elevated high above ground. You have this great view of all those tigers and all those lions. Well, all day long, that's what the kids were excited about. Hey, when, when, when do we get to see the lions? And so finally, at last, they headed in that direction. As they were moving towards the ramp, Kathy said her blanket got tangled up in her friend's baby stroller. So she bent over to try to get that blanket loose. Her two boys, ages three and five, they just took off. They could see the lions in the distance. They were so excited about it. Boy, they couldn't wait. But instead of following the crowd up the ramp, those two little guys noticed this tiny gap in the fence, just tiny enough with their little bodies, they could actually squeeze through. I think we can get a better look over there. So they squeezed through the fence outside the protected area, climbed up on these rocks about 20 feet above the lion pit. And it was innocent. They didn't know they were doing anything wrong. Their mom had said, hey, you'll be high up and be able to look down the lions. And they were. So they yelled back to their mom, 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 look, we can see the lions. And Kathy looked up and saw where they were, and immediately the sense of panic and alarm. Those two boys, they had no idea the trouble they were in, no idea the danger they were in. So what did she do? Should she yell and scream? If she did that, that might startle the boys and cause them to fall off the rocks, or it might alert those lions. There's a free meal standing up there in those rocks. Can't do that. And being an adult, there's no way she could squeeze through that tiny gap in the fence, so there's no way she could actually get to them. How is she going to help? She did the only thing she could do. She got down on her knees. She spread out her arms. Hey, boys, mommy needs a hug. I mean, I really need a hug right now. We'll get to the lines a little bit, but come here and give your mommy a hug. And because of the incredible love she had for her boys, and her boys knew that, they knew how special they were in her eyes. And they thought, our mom needs our help. Man, they were eager to respond. So they climbed back off those rocks, and they squeezed back through that fence, and they came running to their mother running to the love that had called them out of the danger and into a place of safety, calling them out of places where they were not supposed to be and bringing them back to where they were supposed to be next to their mom. That's the kind of love we're talking about here, a love that calls people out of darkness into God's light, that calls us out of places where we are not supposed to be and brings us back where we begin to see God's truth, the truth of what he sees for us, what he wants, what he desires for us.